Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. We've disrupted a category. We've disrupted family dining. And the way we've gone about doing that is we've evolved where others have not. Reimagining the restaurant landscape takes a fresh set of eyes, some focus, and some imagination. And that leads to disruption and the opportunity to be exceptional in one particular niche. That's what's been kind of the hallmark of our success over these 40 years is, is just that we're highly differentiated. If you think about just our hours and our offering and, and how different our menu is, and our customer base is just as diverse and broad as that. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. As today's guest will tell us, the number one choice for dining out experiences has shifted from dinners to breakfasts and lunches. So in the always competitive hospitality industry, restaurants that are focused on doing those meals particularly well are in a fantastic position. Chris Tommaso definitely understands how to excel in this space. He is the CEO of First Watch Restaurants, which trades under the symbol FWRG. Prior to taking the helm in 2018, Chris served as president for three years and as chief marketing officer from 2006 to 2015. Before joining First Watch, Chris led strategic branding and marketing for renowned national and international brands such as Cracker Barrel and Hard Rock Cafe. In 2021, Chris was named one of the restaurant industry's most admired C-suite leaders by FSR Magazine. Later that year, he led First Watch onto Wall Street with their IPO. Chris earned a BA from the University of Central Florida and is an active alumni who currently serves on the University of Central Florida Foundation Board of Directors. He was inducted into the university's Nicholson School of Communications and Media Hall of Fame in 2016. Let's enter the arena with Chris Tommaso. We get up at the crack of dawn. That's what we do. <laughs> We're a, uh, a breakfast, brunch, and lunch only concept. We're open from 7 a.m. until 2.30 p.m. every day. We've been around for 40 years. This is actually our 40th year, 2023 is. And uh, we just passed the significant milestone of having 500 restaurants. So we're known for high quality ingredients, freshness. We don't have heat lamps, deep fryers, or microwaves. Our concept kind of has a health halo in the breakfast space. We've carved out a niche, not only in our, our operating hours, which is pretty unique in the restaurant industry, but also in our menu and what we offer. So on our menu, you'll find things like quinoa and cage-free eggs and organic mixed greens and things like that. And we make everything to order and we've built a solid reputation over the years, but we, we also know that there's a lot of people who still haven't heard of us. We're in 29 states and growing. We've been the fastest growing full-service restaurant company in America the last three years. And I expect we'll claim that title again this year. 
Yeah, I think the concept is so unique, not only for the day parts that you play in, but obviously the menu and that brand connection you're making. When people ask you, who are your competitors? How do you answer that question? Because again, it seems like such a unique thing that you're doing across the restaurant landscape. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a question we get asked frequently. And as you can imagine, we got asked it a lot on the road shows leading up to our IPO. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about our competitive set as in terms of being a herd of cats. So it's typically uh, chef-owned, chef-driven, or mom-and-pop type uh, specialty breakfast and brunch restaurants that you can think of in your town and uh, or regionally. But we don't really have any national competitors per se. We don't talk about ourselves in terms of being in the family dining segment, although analysts and investors, they kind of need buckets to put things in. And yeah, that's where we sometimes end up. But we couldn't be more different than than that segment. And, and we work really hard to differentiate ourselves. And I think that's what's been kind of the hallmark of our success over these 40 years is is just that we're highly differentiated. And I know that's a word that gets thrown around a lot, but if you think about just our hours and our offering and and how different our menu is, and the follow-up question to that, Tom, is typically, you know, who's your customer? And our customer base is just as diverse and broad as that. And it's a place where multi-generations uh, can be in the same room, t- you know, table next to each other. And it's really more about a the psychographic profile of our customer, because as we all know, we know 70 year olds who act 90 and 70 year olds that could probably outrun both of us. You know, they're, they're highly active, highly into exercise and healthy eating and, and we're a good spot for them. So it's really about people who care about what they eat, care about the ingredients, they care about how the food is prepared. And our menu is very diverse and we don't preach about how you should eat, but we certainly offer a wide range that appeals to really anybody. If you want something healthy, we have egg white omelets and quinoa bowls and avocado toast, but you can also get cinnamon chip pancakes, which is the special we're running right now, and and waffles. So it's really about giving people choices. People know what they want to eat and how they want to eat, and we just want to be there for them. Well, let's, let's take a deeper dive into the business. What I wanted to ask you about is the unit economics of the business when you're opening a restaurant. And what are those unit economics mean for development, your real estate strategy, which I think you have a lot of flexibility with, and just generally reinvestment in the business? Yeah. So we have a very compelling business model. And I think it's easy to get hung up on the fact that we're not open for dinner. But what I always say is most restaurants are only open for two day parts, just like we are. They just happen to be open for lunch and dinner. And we're open for breakfast and lunch. So we do high volumes in seven and a half hours a day. We're that one shift. Our average unit volumes are, are just above $2 million. Again, that's on one shift a day. That's on a $16.50 per person average. If you do the math backwards, you'll see that we serve a lot of people in our restaurants. And it's, it's not uncommon for our restaurants to be on, you know, 60 minute, 90 minute waits on the weekends, even though we're pretty prolific operators. But the business model itself is compelling that $2 million average unit volumes where we're building restaurants for about a million four right now. And we're expecting those restaurants to do two and a half million dollars in their third year. So great cash on cash returns, great IRRs. And again, we are a business and a concept that just has continued to grow over the years. So we've got restaurants in our fleet that are 40 years old that are still comping positive and there's some people who may not be familiar with us. So we know that our awareness is relatively low, which 
to us is a positive and, and speaks to the potential down the road. And we believe the consumer is still discovering us. And then going back to your question about competitors, the last stat we had was that 70% of breakfast occasions are still eaten at home. It's the only segment that's been growing in the restaurant industry consistently over the past five to seven years. And, you know, brunch is having its day. It's it's becoming the social occasion. Uh, there was a stat that came out not that long ago that says it, that it has surpassed Friday dinner as the number one eating out occasion. And so we're perfectly positioned for that trend, the trend of consumers wanting to eat healthy, and then obviously just the core foundations of being successful in the restaurant industry, which is consistency, value, and those type of things that we really focus on in high levels of service. So I just, you know, even before going public, I've always felt really good about how we're positioned uh, to continue to take advantage of all of those things as, as we move on here. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to have you speak to the fact that you just have kind of one shift a day. It's in the morning until early afternoon. How does that help you attract the right people and reliable people? How is that an advantage in what you do? It's a significant advantage. I think, you know, it's no secret that the restaurant industry can be a grind. If you're working for a dinner restaurant and, and particularly one that might serve alcohol, you know, it, a manager could be working until two or three in the morning and then have to come in the next day at 10 a.m. I think what we've been able to do is, is really differentiate ourselves with that uh, no night shifts ever approach. It's very compelling. Our servers and our managers make great livings. They still get to be home every night with their families, coach Little League, help with home work, do all those things, but be in the hospitality industry that most of them love and it's in their blood. So what we've seen is a lot of folks who have been in the industry for a while, have worked for some great brands and just realized that they want to have more balance in their life and they want to have more time for their family. And it's always fun to talk to folks who just join us from other concepts and they, and they just talk about that, how their quality of life has improved. I mean, I've heard them say how it's helped their marriage, helped them become to be better parents and things like that. So that's really uh, heartwarming for me to hear that, especially when uh, these folks then stay with us for a long time. We've had turnover that's been about 20% lower than industry average for a long time. And I actually think that COVID uh, opened some people's eyes about that work-life balance and how important that is. And we were well positioned before COVID to attract the best and the brightest. And um, we've really leveraged that since then. And we were back to fully staffed very quickly after the pandemic. And we've got incredible tenure in our organization on the ops level and in the home office. So it is a big lever for us. Yeah. Well, speaking of ops, I read in a recent analyst report that said something to the effect that First Watch has the trifecta of value creation, growing comp store sales, unit growth, and expanding margins. How do you approach the operations of the business? It's kind of a, an overused statement, but it's a people first approach. And our mantra is you first. And we, that applies to our employees and our customers. We put our employees first uh, so that they can put our customers first. And people always ask, like, what's the silver bullet or the one thing? And it's really not one thing. But if you think about most restaurants, they have teams that never even meet each other. <laughs> they pass in the night, you know, there's a lunch shift and then there's a, ch a changeover. Our employees work the one shift together, so they develop a feeling of family and teamwork and, and all of that because they're there helping each other. And I think that goes a really long way in how we execute. And in the economic environment that we're in right now, I think consistency and really focusing on service and things like that, you know, the really good operators are winning right now. You're seeing that. And we certainly 
fall into that category. And I think it's because we have a relentless focus on the customer and on the employee. And we were named Newsweek's Most Loved Workplace again, second year in a row. Really proud of that. And we've been recognized for that. And that's great. But the feedback that we get from our employees is really what drives us and, and guides us also into, into how we continue to position ourselves with them and what we do for them. Yeah. And I think part of getting that feedback is something um, I read about that you do called the Y Tour, W-H-Y. I'd love to hear about that because what struck me is, you know, you have so much going on as the CEO of a growing business, a publicly traded company with a lot of obligations, but you're spending what some people might say is an inordinate amount of time with your people listening to them. Why is that such a huge advantage? I think for that very reason, I think it's very easy to get pulled away from that. And to me, the feedback that we get from our hourly employees out in the restaurants who are taking care of our customers is extremely valuable. And in order for me to be able to do what we need to do to drive the value of the company, I need to make sure that I don't lose touch with what's important. And so it is an inordinate amount of time. I would do more if I could, frankly. I think there's there's no greater value than that. And I worked in one of our restaurants this morning. I was there when we opened up and I worked through the lunch rush and then came to the office and showered and got on with my day. And I try to do that as regularly as possible because it's important. It's important to see what they're dealing with and and any challenges that they have and just hear from them. And so I kind of made a pledge to myself when we went public and I had the good fortune of talking to a lot of CEOs of companies that went public are the banks that, that represented us in the process were kind enough to put me in touch with CEOs and they were kind enough to spend time with me and let me ask questions. And, and they talked about the, the grind that it is being a, a public company CEO and how, you know, there's, there's some kind of sacrifices that go on. And so I just made a pledge and a promise that I wanted to keep one foot in the restaurants for sure and make sure that that was always part of my job. Uh, so I, I think it helps me be successful on all fronts. It's a universal truth now that every company is becoming a technology company, but with a customer service-based concept like FirstWatch, tech has to be applied with a light touch. I wanted to see how Chris sees technology and how it fits with the company's vision. Our screen for that, our brand filter for that is it's got to make the customer experience better and or the employee experience better. And so I would say that there's leaders, there's fast followers, and then then there's us. We just in the last year installed KDS systems in our restaurants, which is pretty common in our industry. But we had a great system that was serving us well in handwriting checks that we used for 38 years. But our business has evolved and frankly, so have our volumes. So we look at technology to fit those needs. And once you get to our size, there's not any technology out there that isn't pitched to us. So we know what's out there, but we want to find what's best for us. And I I still believe, and, and maybe I'm becoming more and more of an outlier here, is I believe that the hospitality piece of our business will always be important, which is why we've shied away from robots and things like that. And we really believe that connection between our staff and our customers uh, is key. And I, I actually believe that the the consumer yearns for that speed and, and accuracy and consistency is important, but it doesn't mean you have to bypass the human element and the high touch aspect of hospitality that I think, you know, the, the consumer looks for. Yeah. I like a- HI instead of AI, human intelligence, yeah. at least for now. Right. 
One thing I, I think is pretty cool, Chris, is your background as a marketer. In my career, I see a lot of CEOs who kind of were the CFOs of companies. And what about uh, having a marketing background makes you maybe a, a little bit different? I think overall, having someone that focuses on the, the voice of the consumer or represents the voice of the customer, making decisions for the company is great. Does it always need to have the CEO title? Not necessarily if they have a lot of influence in the room and, and they have a seat at the table. But I think it's it's really been a, a maturation or an evolution of not only our industry, but I think of, of society in general, that uh, it, things that can't be counted do count. And I think that was disregarded in the past. And I think there's a value in it now that people understand. And again, if you've got somebody who has a, a brand mentality, a brand evolution, but then also the customer experience, um, no offense to my CFO friends. I have lots of them, but you know that that's typically not how their brains work, and my brain doesn't work the way theirs does. And not that all CEOs or CFOs try to save to success, but they're just wired differently. And so we had a philosophy, and we still have it, called invest in the guest. And we've made decisions to increase portions or improve ingredients or invest in plateware and things that on the surface will never show an ROI, but um, is part of our overall brand DNA and, and, and what makes up the perception of, of how the consumer thinks about you as a brand and as a, uh, a concept. It's so true. Sometimes I'll get on like an airline and, you know, you're cramped in your seat and everything. And I always turn to my wife and I'm like, I guarantee you a CFO designed this plane, <laughs> you know, just yeah. like one extra seat. And then you just have like a miserable experience, but um, revenue per inch or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> You're building a, a lot of new restaurants, and that's really exciting, but you're also acquiring franchisees. What's your philosophy on kind of capital allocation and not only capital, but time? How do you kind of look at where you spend your money and your time uh, for the benefit of shareholders? Yeah, I think for us right now, being a high growth concept, we've been reinvesting that. Well, first of all, investing into our growth. The returns I've already talked about are really the best use of capital for us right now. And then likewise, on the franchise acquisitions that we've done, they, they're highly accretive. They're at multiples that are pre-negotiated. The reality of it is, would we want a, a 5% royalty or a 20% restaurant level operating profit margin? And, and oh, by the way, um, more control over the brand. We have and had great franchisees. They represent the brand very well, but we love the model so much. We want to own as many of the restaurants as possible. So we do that. And then because we're a 40-year-old concept, we have some reinvestment to do in updating our fleet on a regular basis. So there's no denying that trade areas shift. And uh, when leases come up, we look at opportunities to reposition ourselves in the market uh, to upgrade existing facilities. So we're constantly doing that. But for right now, we can't think of a better use of capital than that. While well, we've identified a, a path to 2,200 restaurants and we're barely, you know, 25% of the way there. So we've got a lot of green space ahead of us and we've got a plan and, and it's really just a matter of time before we are able to, to execute against that and get to that number. Yeah. I mean, that's like a huge runway, which is exciting. And one little thing that you said in there, I think is so important. A lot of times the Wall Street types, you know, they always love investment in um, like offensive things like new restaurants and this mm -hmm. and that, but like you have to spend money and protect the assets that you have 
Yeah, I think it's table stakes. Look, we've disrupted a category. We've disrupted family dining. Again, I said we're not in family dining, but we've disrupted it. And the way we've gone about doing that is we've evolved where others have not. So that's a very, you know, staid and legacy segment uh, that hasn't done much to keep pace with the consumer and their evolution. And we've opened up in their backyards. And we, I always say we're like a flower in a field and the sun shines just on us when we open. It's it's something that it's fresh. It's new. People didn't even know that you could eat breakfast like what we offer. And so likewise, we don't want to be the one that gets tired and, and stayed in our core market. So we make sure to keep our facilities up to date and fresh. And we're constantly uh, looking at that. And again, if need be, we reposition ourselves within the market when our leases come up and things like that. So we talk about it with the street and make sure they're clear about it, that there's a couple of closures that are going to happen every year. And it's not because they're not doing well, but it's because we want to set ourselves up well for the next 15 years in that market or, or 20 years, because we signed leases for 10 years with two five-year options. So if our research tells us that we're not in an ideal place to benefit from that over the next 20 years, we'll, we'll do what we need to do. Yeah. Shifting gears a little bit, obviously the last couple of years have been crazy with interest rates and inflation and everything. What are you seeing right now uh, with the consumer, Chris? What are you seeing with inflation kind of in real time? So we had our toughest year about a year and a half ago with avian influenza and the, and the strain on the egg supply, and we weathered that very well. So it's no secret that we've been very conservative on pricing. We've been a, a laggard to the industry on that pricing. I've, I've just felt that there would be a reckoning at some point. And I think we're starting to see that now. As a matter of fact, it's been well reported that we're seeing that now. And I think because of our relative position uh, as it relates to that, that's why we've been able to see positive traffic in our dining rooms and continued positive mix in our restaurants. We, you know, the, we're not seeing any signs when the consumer comes in our restaurant that they're pulling back in any way, no check management. They're, they're opting for the full experience. They're getting their coffee and their second beverage, things that you would normally look for in a wobbly consumer. We're not seeing it. So I think the decisions that we've made, you know, particularly a year, 18 months ago, uh, is what has led to where we are today. And I think we're really well positioned. So the good news is we believe we still have pricing power. Uh, we haven't had to take it. We've been really focusing on traffic and, and getting folks back in the restaurants after the pandemic. And we've had some of the strongest traffic counts uh, in the industry since then. So hindsight's 2020. I'm really proud of the decisions we've made. I'm proud of the outcomes of those decisions. And uh, I think we're really set up well now to fly through this next year. Yeah. Going from private to, to public can always be a bit of a shock to the system. You all have handled it great. What's been the biggest surprise of being a public company CEO? I think we had a, a pretty good testing ground in that we had three private equity partners prior to going public. So, and I've been here for all three. So, and each one was really the, the right sized and the right scope firm for the size that we were at the time. And so with each firm, I think we got more sophisticated in our reporting. Um, and really it was kind of like a training ground for going public. And Advent International invested in us in 2017, in August of 2017. And they've really helped uh, prepare us for life as a public company. Our first failed launch was right before COVID. We were well on our way to going public and, and pulled back uh, in February of, of 20, but we were ready. So when we felt like the market was right, we did that. And it's been great. And I think 
you know, it's, it was a little bit of a coming out party for us, a validation for us. I love going around and telling the first watch story. I loved getting people in our restaurants to see what we're all about. Probably the, the biggest transition and has, has been, you know, obviously the time that myself and our CFO now spend doing that. It's like a whole nother month's worth of work got added. Whole other job. Yeah. And so that's why it's really important to continue to work in the business and not just on the business from my perspective. You, I, you really have to have that balance. But we've worked really hard to make it be seamless and uh, a non-event for our ops team, which is really the most important part. So we've worked really hard to to separate those things. But you know better than anybody the work that it takes to be a public company. And so you feel like you do one earnings call and you're already working on the next quarter. And uh, that's awesome. just how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we're, we're a couple years into it now and I th- we've gotten into a nice groove and you add some positions that you didn't have before, an IR position, a, yeah. you know, all kinds of positions that help you with that. But it's obviously, a, I talk about it in terms of being a, getting a real life MBA, you know, taking a company public. It's, I also looked at it as a blessing, how many people get to actually do that. And so as hard as it is and as hard as it was, I, I, I relish it. Yeah, what amazing experience. Like, think about what you've learned in the last five right. years. It's it's mm-hmm. incredible. But think about, like, how professionally managed the business is versus probably when you first got into the industry, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know what your yeah. first job was, but, like, you had no idea. Like, all of us starting our career. Like, how did you get into the business? I, I never intended to, to be honest with you. Uh, working in restaurants was a job that I had when I was 13, you know, just to make money so I could buy a car when I was 15 and drive when I was 16. But I had intended to be in sports and entertainment marketing. I my degrees in journalism with a specialization in advertising and public relations. So working in restaurants never crossed my mind as a career. I worked for uh, a public relations firm out of college and a, and a sports channel. It used to be called the I was doing exactly what I thought I was going to do. And then I went to work for a a public relations firm in Orlando and we signed Hard Rock Cafe International as a client who's headquartered in Orlando. And so to me, that was still an entertainment job, not a restaurant job. And then on that side of the business, I became responsible for live events and artist relations and worked with every celebrity musician you could think of and thought, okay, this is this, I'm on my path. This is what I want to do. And then Hard Rock asked me to come in-house as a marketing manager. I took that job and and moved up quickly to uh, vice president of worldwide marketing. After about three years, I was the youngest VP in the history of the company. I had offices in Orlando and New York and LA and London. And my wife and I just started our family and I was traveling all over the world. And I realized I'm not going to see my kids grow up. I, I'm in Europe a lot. We had a, a parent company in London and was there. So I always wanted to be a dad and I wanted to make sure I was a present dad. So I got a call uh, about an opportunity at Cracker Barrel restaurants where they were looking for somebody who had restaurant marketing and retail marketing experience. Hard Rock Cafe's retail mix was about 50% of their restaurant revenue and Cracker Barrel's was about 20. And so our children weren't in school yet. And my wife and I said, let's, let's go try that. And so we went to Nashville and I was there three years and the entire executive team got 
got overhauled and I wasn't working for the people I signed up to work for. And somehow people know they, they sense things like that. And I got another call to, to join First Watch. Catterton Partners had just invested in First Watch. Yep. And uh, Frank Vest, one of the founders, uh, I had the opportunity to interview with him. And he said, look, we have something special here, but we, we want to grow it, but we're not sure how to go about doing that. It's an incredibly run restaurant company, but uh, the brand needs a lot of work and, and positioning. And so... I looked at it as an opportunity and, and we moved down here to Sarasota, which was familiar to us. And next thing I do, I was in the restaurant industry. So uh, had I not taken that job at Cracker Barrel, I probably would not have been considered for another breakfast brand like like First Watch. And 17 and a half years later, you know, here I am talking to you. So it's been great. When I started at First Watch, we had 58 restaurants. It was a little company. I think there were 12 of us in the corporate office. And again, another reason I think I'm in this position is we had to wear so many hats. I had to do real estate and and culinary and HR and some operations, plus my marketing job. So I think all of that experience helped position me and prepare me. You know, I got to work alongside our co-founder for 13 years or 14 years, and he basically groomed me to to succeed him, which is what we did. And so I still talk to him all the time. And I know he's proud of where the company's gone. And he sometimes he can't believe he started at restaurant number two. So oh my God. Uh, he, he, he can't believe how, how much we've grown and that we're knocking on the door of a billion dollars in revenue and a hundred million in, in adjusted EBITDA. First Watch has developed such a unique concept and their strong company culture is propelling the company forward. Not only that, with their great unit economics, they've got loads of opportunity for creating value, including through the acquisition of franchisees. It's a fantastic position to be in, trust me. And from what I can see, they absolutely own the category that they're in. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Chris Tomaso for coming on the show today. When the CEO allocates some of his time to actually work in the restaurant, you know you've got a great leader who's committed to his employees and who really understands the business. With that kind of approach, it's no surprise that First Watch is doing so well, and I know it's going to keep going. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.